Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud with your host, cloud economist Corey Quay. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud is generously sponsored by DigitalOcean. I would argue that every cloud platform out there biases for different things. Uh, Some bias for having every feature you could possibly want offered as a managed service at varying degrees of maturity. Others bias for, hey, we heard there's some money to be made in the cloud space. Uh, Can you give us some of it? DigitalOcean biases for neither. Uh, To me, they optimize for simplicity. I polled some friends of mine who are avid DigitalOcean supporters about why they're using it for various things, and they all said more or less the same thing. Other offerings have a bunch of shenanigans with root access and IP addresses, and DigitalOcean makes it all simple. In 60 seconds, you have root access to a Linux box with an IP. That's a direct quote, uh, albeit with profanity about other providers taken out. DigitalOcean also offers fixed price offerings. Uh, You always know what you're going to wind up paying this month, so you don't wind up having a minor heart issue when the bill comes in. Their services are also understandable without spending three months going to cloud school. You don't have to worry about going very deep to understand what you're doing. It's click button or make an API call, and you receive a cloud resource. They also include very understandable monitoring and alerting. And lastly, they're not exactly what I would call small time. Over 150,000 businesses are using them today. So go ahead and give them a try. Uh, Visit do.co slash screaming, and they'll give you a free $100 credit to try it out. That's do.co slash screaming. Thanks again to DigitalOcean for their support of Screaming in the Cloud. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. Today I'm joined by serverless hero, Yen Trey. Welcome to the show. Hey, Corey. Uh, good to be here. <laughs> so you do a lot of things. You are a principal engineer over at DAZN. You wind up doing a, your own video course at productionreadyserverless.com. You blog at theburningmonk.com. It, it feels like you're something of a kindred spirit in that when someone asks me, so what do you do? I have to figure out, well, okay, from what perspective? Because there's about 15 different possible answers to that question. Yeah, um, uh, was, I don't know. Was that a question? <laughs> <laughs> Only if you want it to be. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning, I guess, since you have so many things that are, I guess, across the board here. What, I guess, what? who are you? <laughs> you sort of burst onto the scene, at least of my awareness, about a year or so ago. You were named a serverless hero at the beginning of this year. You were writing an awful lot of content that I found myself, I guess, tripping over, for lack of a better term, that was that resonated very well with various audiences that, that hit on different points. And I always came away with the same perspective of, wow, that's insightful. But we never really got to have much of a conversation about this until relatively recently when we tripped over one another at a conference. Yeah. Um, so I guess for me, I've been, I've been writing for quite a long time now. Uh, I've, I find the writing and well, I'm blogging a, a really useful way for me to remind myself uh, and also to form a, force myself to really understand something beyond the basics. And it's, it's amazing that when you force yourself to get to the point where you are capable and able to explain something to someone else in words that are you know, a lot easier to understand, um, then you, know, you really force you to, to reach a level of understanding that you probably didn't think uh, you needed at first. 
Um, and so I've been writing, I've been writing about various different things around the computing and functional programming. I was really sort of active in the F sharp and functional programming scene for quite a while. Um, and uh, serverless is just a thing that I got really, really interested in, in, I guess, 2016, around that time when the, I joined a social network, which eventually ran out of money. Uh, but when I, when we were there, we moved a lot of the things that we were working on to serverless. And we really learned a lot about in terms of uh, what when you run serverless in production, what are all the sort of challenges that you end up running into? And I think it's a similar problem that a lot of people are running into now, whereby it's so easy to go to production with Lambda. Sometimes you kind of forget that all the things you learn from the microservices uh, sort of transition from a monolith to microservices, all the things still very much apply. And uh, some people that are moving straight from, say, on-premises to the cloud with Lambda, you are missing some of that learning from, from, from that process. And uh, a lot of people are getting tripped over because they weren't ready to think about how do you bring some of those you know, good practices we learned during the microservices era to this new world of serverless. And they're referring to problems of Okay, how do we monitor things? How do I debug this hugely distributed system with so many different Lambda functions and uh, with uh, both synchronous as well as asynchronous event sources? So yeah, um, I find there's a huge amount of things there to you know to to learn and to share uh, with, with regards to serverless. So I've been kind of really busy just learning myself, but also trying to share as much as I can. There's something very valuable about giving back in the context of having learned something new and going and telling that story and sharing it with new folks onward. I mean, to some extent, I believe that that's what they base the uh, Hero program from AWS on. Uh, what was it like joining that? I mean, I, I've looked into it from the outside, but I've never been invited to participate in it. Apparently, actively insulting what they do every week in a sarcastic newsletter isn't the best way to get them to invite you to do things. Who knew? But it seems to me from the outside that it's it's based largely upon helping educate people, helping bring people along for, I guess, the knowledge journey. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like to, I guess, to be invited and, and, and effectively what a serverless hero is? Uh, that is a good question. I don't really, I don't know if I really have the, the good, good answer for that. Um, I think, uh, Partly, I think. Well, I think the reason why I'm invited is because I'm doing all of these uh, articles and also doing video courses and try to share and try to, uh, you know, I guess bring good, good practices, uh, good practices into the serverless community. Uh, so, what it's like, it's definitely been really helpful for me personally um, in terms of just getting more recognition for what I'm doing. I guess maybe to some extent, bring some authority to what I'm writing and saying as well. That you know, more people think. Okay, this is not just some crazy guy shining from the roof, but uh, if AWS is uh, happy to give him some, I don't know, unofficial title, uh, maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about. So from that regard, I think it's been really useful. And also you get a free ticket to reinvent, which I think is pretty awesome. <laughs> Sometimes that's really all it's about. Yeah, the, those of us uh, sitting outside of the, uh, of the circle get to pay for it. Uh, so... What was interesting is we wound up catching up relatively recently in Dusseldorf, Germany, of all places, where you gave a talk on the concept of chaos engineering meeting serverless, which is fascinating to me on a variety of different levels. I mean, first off, isn't running on a distributed system similar to Lambda effectively its own form of chaos engineering experiment? 
<laughs> uh, yes, and there's, uh, there's, and also I guess uh, when the I, f- I forgot who it was, uh, maybe, maybe even maybe 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 this was you, uh, someone who wrote recently about how if you run in US East one, uh, that's kind of running a chaos experiment in itself. Uh, because the uh, US is one is so prone to having all kind of problems that are uh, they probably don't see many other regions. <laughs> well, there's so much running there too that every slight hiccup winds up affecting someone. So uh, to some extent, that entire region has a bit of a bad rap. But it's it, it's interesting just from a perspective, at least where I sit, of trying to understand how chaos engineering would even look in a serverless context. Because to some extent what you're doing is you're writing code. You're writing your arbitrary code and handing that to a provider. And at that point, almost everything's happening on the other side, I guess, of the Amazonian wall in that context, where, okay, it's going to go and it's going to do these things. And if Amazon breaks, it could break in new and exciting and interesting ways that I may not be able to accurately predict. How do you wind up seeing that? How do you, I guess, figure out what types of failures to wind up practicing for? It kind of, I guess it really depends on what it is that uh, you're doing, what services that you're using. And also with chaos engineering, it's not just about uh, figuring out what, uh, what happens to Amazon services. There's so many different errors that can happen between your own services and also within your own services as well. And I think even though we can probably rely on Amazon to do a certain degree of uh, chaos engineering to make sure that on the infrastructure side of things, that uh, they are well tested and, res- and resilient to many forms of failures. But ultimately, as, as an application, as someone who owns the system and responsible for the user experience they give to our users, we have to aim for a level of resilience beyond what we get out of the box with Lambda. And for that, from, from that regard, uh, we have to move, we have to also test failures and resistance uh, to those failures at the application level. And for the, uh, that, that's something that the guys at Gremlin who offers a commercial solution for running chaos experiments yourself, that's an area that they are also focusing on. And uh, in fact, from recently, they, are ju- they, are, um, they have just announced a new application layer failure injection framework that you can potentially use from Lambda as well. And I think right now it's only available for Java, but they're going to make it available for other languages too. The challenge almost goes beyond that from where I sit to, the, to a point where, I mean, I know they've been beaten up for this an awful lot, and I'm not trying to belabor the point, but back when they had their big S3 issue a year or so ago, that wound up not just taking down S3, but an awful lot of other things that had baked in under the hood dependencies on S3. You'll see something similar even with or without serverless, where you're going to have an environment that's predicated entirely upon certain behavior patterns. But if US East 1, for example, drops down and your entire strategy is to move a bunch of traffic over to US West 2... In an isolation, when you test that, everything goes well. In practice, there's going to be congestion on the control plane. A lot of people are going to want to be failing over at the same time. You, you almost have a herd of elephants problem where at that point, that's the sort of latency trickle-down effect that is difficult to predict without a very thorough understanding of how Amazonian systems behave. So to some extent, it almost feels like you're in a position of having to enumerate all the bad things that can happen that could possibly go wrong rather than trying to build a resilient system aimed at a wide variety of problems. Am I thinking about that the wrong way? I think uh, with chaos engineering, it goes, it goes beyond predicting what can go wrong, uh, but also 
with, for example, they just gave in terms of what happens when the region goes down. In theory, you may have uh, predicted how things would go wrong, how you can shift traffic around, but you never really know for sure whether or not things will pay out the way you expect them to until you actually try it. In the same way that a lot of companies spend a lot of time coming up with all these sophisticated uh, plans for disaster recovery, how they move different workloads around to different data centers and so on, and how you work, but they never exercise them in reality. So chances are when something does happen, you may, your, system, your, your disaster recovery plan may not work the way you plan. So one of the practices that the, uh, people do with uh, regards to chaos engineering is to actually exercise those scenarios. So, for example, you may plan a game day whereby, uh, well, Netflix does this uh, from time to time, whereby they will plan a game day and actually trigger a uh, region-wide failure and see how, whether or not their system is able to recover from those uh, regional failures the way they they hypothesize that uh, it should. So part of the chaos engineering is about uh, exercising those failure modes and see how your system actually behaves so that you can learn from it. And I think that's really what it comes down to is learning. It's, it's I mean, to, to not to tell Netflix they're doing it wrong, but I, I wish it was easy to wave a hand and see if an issue you're seeing is just an entire region broke. It, it, it never tends to manifest that way. Things start working intermittently. Some services start responding with strange messages. Some wind up responding at increased latencies. But very rarely is it a everything goes dark and nothing is responsive. Invariably, and I, I still blame most monitoring companies for this one, where you wind up in a place where every single environment you're in is, every person who has an issue is, pops their head up and says, is it just me or is it my infrastructure? I mean, the best early warning sign we still have in some cases is DevOps Twitter. There, there's no great way to say, is it my crappy code? Is it our last deploy? Or is this a wider provider issue? Yeah, that's really funny you say that uh, because uh, Amazon has been well, traditionally really slow at updating their service health dashboards. And oftentimes I find myself uh, asking the same questions. Uh, oh, can, is it my infrastructure? Is it something happening in AWS? Uh, uh, nothing, nothing is updating in, in their service health dashboard. Uh, and then you go to Twitter and see whether or not other people are also complaining about AWS being in, uh, impacted in the region that you are in as well. It's funny, you're kind of always uh, outsourcing your uh, AWS monitoring to, to Twitter. Oh, yeah. And, and you, there are ways to fix this. I mean, it would be interesting, for example, if PagerDuty would wake you up with a notification that says, hey, by the way, we're seeing more than two standard deviations of other people in this region also being paged right now. It, it would shave 15 minutes off most companies' response plans because they're immediately aware that, oh, it wasn't someone pushing bad code or a disk filling up or a database falling over. No, no, this is a provider-level problem. Just getting that first pass issue is something most companies can't do themselves. So that's a whole separate thing to rant on. Instead, let's let's talk about something else that irritates people to no end. API Gateway. Uh, you've written a fair bit on it lately. You've been going into some depth as far as how to work with it, various things it can do. And I have to say that whenever I work with API Gateway, I come away feeling more confused than I did when I started. Is that just me or is it really confusing? It is really confusing. Um, in part, I think it's because it can do so many different things. And, uh, and I guess um, it's not always clear what, given all the different options, uh, what is the right thing to do given a particular context. Uh, and you can, you know, and also there's also some, uh, I guess, peculiarities to how 
API Gateway works, for instance, uh, when you create a custom domain name. And it, it just never occurred to me the first time around that, uh, when, well, the first time I did it, that um, when it creates a custom domain name, it's going to create CloudFormation, but for some reason, it doesn't use CloudFormation caching. So if you want to have caching enabled, you have to do it in API Gateway layer or now you can do it with a regional endpoint and have your own CloudFormation uh, distribution for that custom domain name. As well as all the different authentication uh, mechanisms that it supports, uh, when you use which one. And a lot of that is, is I guess, is something that I have had to learn myself and through experiment, and also just uh, through different use cases that has come out in my, in my line of work. Uh, I wish there's better documentation, there's better education out there uh, from AWS in terms of providing guidelines uh, on when you should use, uh, say, IEM authorization versus uh, uh, Cognito versus um, something custom uh, or using a custom authorizer function, for example. And also, it's just uh, so the sheer amount of things that that's, uh, that's included in API Gateway it does very much feel like a Swiss army knife uh, <laughs> for all, kind, all the different things that you, you may want to do. And also, it's not a very cheap service either by comparison to, say, Lambda invocations. It more, I think for most people in production, they are likely to cost a lot more than what they pay for Lambda. Oh, absolutely. Um, for those who aren't aware, API Gateway acts as a HTTP or HTTPS front end for a variety of Lambda functions. But you can also put other things behind it. It effectively is aware of different verb HTTP verbs that you can wind up leveraging. It can follow all sorts of interesting and convoluted workflows. It's more or less a networking Swiss army knife, by which I mean all of the instructions are apparently written in Swiss German and no one's really clear on how to use it for certain things. And the feedback from AWS around this service has largely been of the form, oh, use it however you'd like, which is reassuring but surprisingly unhelpful. And every time I start using it, I am completely convinced I'm doing it wrong. But it seems to work for the use case that I have. So I continue to sit here and my resentment for API Gateway continues to grow. <laughs> and I don't know if you have ever had to interact with uh, API Gateway with, with um, its own RESTful API to, con- to talk to its control plane. It's one of the most awkward APIs that I've had to work with. I haven't even gotten to the point of trying to c- trying to configure uh, API Gateway via direct calls. Everything I've done with it so far has been through serverless framework, and that's really the only thing that makes it makes sense to me. But I do suspect there's an entire sea of complexity that I'm not exposed to that could probably solve my problem in half the time. So it's one of those areas where it's just, uh, it, it's, a, it's a future state thing. I'll look at that one of these days. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do the same thing as well. I mostly interact with API Gateway through the service framework, which simplifies things so much more. But a few times I've had to, I guess, provision API Gateway with Terraform and other things uh, that sort of you know, force you to understand how API gateway resources are managed and configured, how they link up together. There's just a whole sea of complexity under the hood, which your serverless, which frankly, the serverless framework just shields you from. Absolutely. It's one of those areas that I think is still evolving. But let's get a little out of the weeds for a minute and look, let's look at big picture stuff. You're a, you're a modern day thought leader as far as serverless goes, which means you've been using it for more than 20 minutes. Let's look forward at it. I guess serverless, uh, instead of as it stands today, let's look at what it looks like a few years down the road. Uh, I've been saying for a little while now that 
Today, it feels a little bit like a toy in the context of what it's going to look like in a few years. And I've had some people get very angry at that characterization and say, no, it's not a toy. It's awesome. It's perfect. We run production on it. Shut your mouth. And other people agree with me. And invariably, I inadvertently starting a war and then I sneak out the back and take a cab back to the airport and catch an early flight home. And well, we hope most of those people lived. Where do you fall on that particular spectrum? I certainly think that uh, it's good enough to um, to run production workload on that. And uh, I know many people are running very heavy production workloads on serverless, uh, while well, Lambda and other similar uh, functional service offerings. So I definitely think that it's, it's you know it is good enough for production. Uh, as for you know, it being a toy compared to what is fun, what it can look like in a couple of years' time, that's I think that is definitely the case. Uh, what we see today is. It's something that's useful, that's usable in production, but it has got many caveats that requires uh, knowledge to, to work around, uh, which is why I find that you know, the course, video course I've been doing or the blog post I've been writing, they provide value to the people that are, that are reading them, that are watching them. But at the same time, I wish I don't have to write those things. I wish more things just work out of the box. And I believe in the, in, the, in the next couple of years, things will continue to evolve. Some of the problems people are having today in terms of uh, order limitations uh, around VPCs, ENIs, and co-start, all of those will just go away and uh, it will work a lot better as a platform. There will be more flexibility so that it's potentially you can say, okay, uh, I don't want to use Go, I don't want to use Node, I want to use uh, Rust or some peculiar language that I have uh, just discovered. You should be able to just bring your own language runtime to the platform and use uh, uh, Lambda or other functions of service as a sort of more general path, uh, abstraction over uh, containers and other compute resources. Um, and I definitely think um, all the problems that we are seeing today in terms of uh, some of the uh, scaling limits, all of that is going to go away as well. And some of the complexities around how do you build observability into your server application, all of that should also be improved dramatically compared to what we have today, which is oftentimes uh, many home-baked uh, solutions for shipping logs to uh, monitor to, to getting correlation IDs and things like that into our server application, which for many, for many years now we've been able to just offload to some uh, of vent, uh, some uh, uh, third-party vendor to provide out-of-the-box for us. I would agree with you. It's There's a lot of stuff that feels like is half-baked and isn't done yet. There is there is a story about how using Lambda dramatically speeds up the time it takes to write an application and get it into production. But I feel like it doesn't really kick in until the third application you write. The first one, as you learn the caveats and trip over it, wait, it does what, feels like it's going to take a lot longer in order to make sense of it. The, the gains don't really come until you've repeated it a few times, where you desperately need to be a lot more, I guess, once you've, been, once you've come up to speed, you've found out where the sharp edges are, you understand the model now, now you're going to be more effective. But I don't get the sense, that maybe this is just me, that you can drop it in front of a team of developers and they will be immediately more productive that week. Is that naive? No, I agree with that. And in fact, I think uh, serverless exposes the development team a lot of things that they may not be used to thinking about, or the operational side of things um, in terms of you know how do you set up as centralized logging, uh, monitoring, and uh, and and just I guess tracing as well. A lot of those things that um, traditionally you know development teams has been able to offload to the, some kind of uh, I guess a platform team or DevOps team uh, for a lack of a better name. 
now they have to think about themselves. Now they have to understand uh, uh, how to do how to instrument their code, how to build it above their code in in the in the native in the guess the native uh, environment when they're running in the cloud. And I think it does mean that a lot of uh, the traditional development teams uh, who haven't been exposed to that, they now have to up their game and really learn the operational side of things and how to make their service applications uh, production ready. Who are you seeing these days as far as people who are building up serverless applications? Is, who's using it? And I guess for what types of use cases? I mean, we, we do see the toy problems that wind up being shown on stage at various conferences. And I've seen it for backend, but are you starting to see full-on applications being written start to finish using serverless technologies? Or is it more of, I guess, a helper thing in, in your experience? I live in San Francisco, so I tend to see a lot of things with a different angle. Hey, we wrote this thing last night. It does serverless blockchain machine learning the end. And that's Great and all, but isn't exactly representative of what the rest of the world sees. Yeah, I haven't really seen any serverless blockchain uh, AI slash uh, whatever uh, um, uh, and uh, whatever buzzword is out there. What I do see is a lot of people building, um, I guess, uh, building web applications, building backends, and I guess it really depends on the company that you work in. A lot of it, I think, a lot of adoptions for serverless is driven by. The, I guess cultures in the company. Uh, for for instance, I see a lot of uh, DevOps teams adopting serverless because uh, it makes their life a lot easier in terms of uh, and also make their solutions a lot more cost effective by moving, say, cron jobs to run inside Lambda function and being able to do a lot of automation uh, for resources and monitoring as well, both from the operational but also from the security point of view by hooking into all these different events they can capture with CloudTrail and then using Lambda function to react to them through CloudWatch events patterns. And I also see a lot of application developers free themselves of some of the organizational constraints and uh, and the inertias around dependencies on, say, a DevOps team, which uh, is the, the holds the key to the kingdom. And with uh, serverless, application developers uh, can take ownership of more of their infrastructure, of more of more of their systems, with uh, so using uh, using serverless without getting entangled by all these hundreds of different tools that you use for the uh, for the DevOps and. And I guess uh, also another another one I see as uh, often a lot is uh, IoT. A lot of people I've spoken to are in the IoT world, and for them, serverless seems to just be a very natural fit. Um, I guess iRobot and Ben Cahill as I often talk about how they are using serverless and really just you know take the take the whole usage to the next level. But there's a lot of other uh, smaller companies, uh, many startups in the IoT world that are making really heavy use of serverless. In fact, uh, not long ago, I was, talk- I was uh, speaking at a, a local user group event uh, in London, and one of the small, one of the companies, a uh, very small company, they have got uh, their own IoT platform, and yet uh, they were, I think at that point, one of the biggest users of Lambda in the whole of Europe, and they were easily doing several you know, tens of thousands of concurrent executions per second. And Lambda and one serverless to give you that that flexibility and that uh, that scalability pretty much out of the box. And um, yeah, so those are some common use cases I've seen uh, from companies that are doing um, ops automation, building your traditional web applications as well as the IoT. And there's also a few other places where I've, uh, including a couple of companies, 
companies that I have worked for where we have done that we've moved a lot of our analytics pipeline to run on serverless using Lambda, uh, Kinesis, Firehose, Athena, and QuickSight, all of that, the entire stack so that we have the whole pipeline without having to manage and run any server ourselves. And we only pay for data that we process and, and we query. I think that we're starting to see this really gain steam and move toward a place where we're not I guess seeing it, we haven't seen this sort of adoption from the same players historically. It does feel an awful lot like there's, I guess, more of an enterprise embrace of this than there has been with previous things. It's, you didn't see enterprises rushing to the cloud. You saw small companies doing it. Eventually it turned into a wave. I, I feel almost to some extent like we're seeing enterprises embrace serverless before we are the startups. Yeah, I'm seeing that as well. In London, there are a lot of financial and uh, there are a lot of financial companies. Uh, financial institutions and uh, I have been seeing uh, I guess more adoption of serverless in that world than I anticipated. Uh, companies like Capital One, companies, I think uh, Goldman Sachs is, is using serverless as well and a few other sort of big enterprises which I didn't expect them to be on, this, on the sort of serverless uh, wave and almost sometimes I feel like they some, some of these companies are are so late to the, uh, the, the to the cloud that they're just jumping over the whole containerization step and go straight to serverless because that was easier. It was easier entry into in, into the cloud than to go in through the infrastructure as a service and using containers. I definitely feel to some extent like containers are almost a transitional step, same with orchestrating them in place, but that tends to be controversial and it's probably a conversation best reserved for another day. So you do have a talk at reInvent coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, uh, it will be an extended version of the Chaos Engineering and Serverless talk I did at SIUCon in Europe. Uh, so again, it's uh, talking about how it's, it's about the challenges that we face in the serverless world in terms of building greater resilience than we are able to get out of the box with uh, AWS. And... Um, Many, some of the many of the things that we talked about earlier in terms of how do we then identify failure cases and how do we simulate it to verify that our application can actually handle those uh, failure modes, but also try to uncover failure modes that we are not aware of yet by running scenarios that maybe we just don't know what our systems would do, but we know it's probably going to be bad so that we can run those scenarios in an environment outside of production so that we can learn about our system's failure modes ahead of it actually happening in production so that it gives a chance to then build resilience into the application so that we can take the principles of chaos engineering and bring them into the application layer rather than just applying them at the infrastructure layer. Which I think opens up an awful lot of opportunities. I think it's a def- the version that I saw was fantastic. I highly recommend that people wind up catching this if you can, either at reInvent itself or on the video after the fact. So if people like what you have to say, where else can they find you? Uh, they can find me on... Twitter, um, I, and uh, they can also find me on my video course as well. If you go to productionreadyserverless.com, uh, that will take you to the mailing video courses uh, page where you can buy the video or just uh, check out the first couple of uh, chapters. And you can also find me on my blog, theburningmonk.com, and I also do a lot of writing on Medium as well as for a few other companies. I recently wrote, wrote a blog post for Logs.io on uh, serverless versus the containers from a perspective around uh, um, control versus responsibility and you know, and vendor logging in terms of the risk versus the reward. 
Uh, so looking at the current state and the adoption trends for both serverless as well as containers. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, there's always, of course, the conference circuit as well. If someone's lucky enough to run into you at a conference like I did, I absolutely recommend it. You're incredibly gracious. You're an excellent speaker. And you tend to tell stories in ways that are very engaging. So thank you for that. And thank you. That's a, that's a, that's a that's an amazing compliment. Uh, thank you very much. This has been Yen Trey. I'm Corey Quinn. And this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at ScreamingInTheCloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.